Hey guys, welcome back to Living in the New Renaissance. I'm Darren, and uh, today I'm actually interviewing somebody as a follow-up to podcast number six. Um, getting a little bit uh, a little choppy, but I think if I don't move too much, we should be okay. Um, podca- podcast number six, if you didn't see it, was a podcast with Dr. Carly Howitt, and she's with the New Horizons program we had discussed the idea of an uncrewed uh, spaceflight, which my wife <coughs> goes and tells me, well, I, uncrewed to me says it's refined as opposed to uh, crude, which is very basic. And I'm going, no, 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 it's crude as in people. And she's like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. And it's like, yeah, okay, but you know, anyway, that all being said, uh, we spoke about uncrewed spaceflight and new horizons in the Ralph program and where the probe is going in the future. And she very kindly put me in contact with uh, another fellow. Uh, This guy is uh, Dan Durda. And Dan is with uh, SWRI and he's a, uh, well, I'll let him actually explain everything he does, but uh, Dan and I are going to be talking about crude as in C-R-E-W-E-D, spaceflight, uh, putting people on ships and sending them off into orbit type idea. So, um, hey, Dan, uh, thanks for being so patient. We initially kind of geeked out a little bit, and that was awesome. But, uh, yeah, I'm just wondering if you can uh, tell me a little bit to, about yourself, like uh, who you are, uh, what you are, uh what you do as a SWRI specialist, and uh, what does SWRI stand for as an acronym? Yeah, you bet. Hey, Darren, uh, great to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I I love love talking about all this stuff. It's uh, we're, I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm Dan Durda. I'm a uh, planetary scientist at uh, the Southwest Research Institute (SWRI) um, here in Boulder, Colorado. Actually, the the company itself um, is a it's a, a research and development company based in San Antonio, Texas. But uh, we have a Boulder, Colorado uh, branch office that's uh, fairly large, has maybe, I don't know, something like 100 PhDs here, uh, uh, engineers. Um, uh, we do primarily, um, uh, you know, space, space uh, uh, research, uh, space exploration stuff. We're, uh, we're the home institution for the uh, New Horizons mission, as you talked with Carly about last time. Uh, but we're also involved in a lot of other space missions as well. Uh, we have folks here who do, you know, uh, the magnetic field of the Earth and binary stars, and uh, a lot of folks that are interested in planetary science. So, you know, the atmosphere of Venus and volcanoes on Io. And uh, my specialty is in asteroids. Um, I got my PhD um, trying to figure out uh, where some of the, the dust in the in the solar system comes from. Um, some of it comes from comets. We see that in the tails of comets all the time. But we also see the signs, the evidence that asteroids have bashed together in the past out there in the main asteroid belt. And uh, that got me interested in thinking about collisions between asteroids and impact physics and impact cratering. Uh, and uh, so that got me into the, the violent world of, of impact experiments and going out and using big, uh, big uh, hypervelocity gas guns to fire BBs into rock samples at five kilometers a second and uh, set off big explosions in the desert to look at the, uh, the resulting craters and things like that. So that's the, that's the kind of fun I get to have. And uh, that kind of, you know, got me into, you know, thinking about what it's going to be like when we actually go to one of these little asteroids and start exploring it. First with our robotic spacecraft, as we're doing right now, uh, with the OSIRIS-REx mission at Bennu and the uh, Hayabusa-2 mission at uh, Ryugu. Uh, what's it going to be like when we as people get to go there? That's always been a really fascinating subject for me. Yeah, I totally get it. And actually, it made me think about uh, something as well, that uh, you must be totally geeking about the possibility of uh, 
what's happening going to happen in the the future with Phobos and Deimos uh, in yeah. orbit around Mars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's. I mean, people are already talking about missions to Phobos as kind of a uh, like, like a like a a staging post, a precursor, a stepping stone to Mars itself, right? Because you know, going to Mars, one of the difficulties is actually getting down to the surface. Mars has got this weird atmosphere that's you know, just thick enough that you have to deal with it, but it's so thin that you can't really use it effectively for, you know, or you know, very effectively for aerobraking and parachutes and things for very, very heavy stuff. And so it's this, it turns out it's a really difficult problem getting to figure out how to land on Mars, especially when you start talking about, you know, a many, many, many tons uh, spacecraft with, with a human crew on board. So um, uh, some, pe- some people are thinking, well, maybe we could, you know, go to, go to Phobos first, you know, which is a much easier thing to deal with and kind of get used to the idea of having people out that far, almost like a, almost like an Apollo eight of a, of a Mars mission sort of, sort of thing, right? You go there without actually landing on the surface first. Yeah. It's actually that, that was something I was uh, thinking about as well. It'd be a highly practical idea. Um, if you went and <clears throat> I was hoping to talk to Robert Bigelow from Bigelow Aerospace about this idea too, but if you go and um, people that aren't familiar with the idea, if you go and you have, a moon or an asteroid that's basically uh, floating above the surface of a planet and you dock a ship at it, uh, you can potentially build a little habitat or uh, basically create the equivalent of a space station and use that as a means to go and uh, have your missions land on Mars from there. But if you also have your moon being mined at the same time, you can build crew quarters and everything else inside the, the moon, which is something I think would be a highly practical idea. Um, I'm hoping to talk to Robert Bigelow about the idea too, because I, um, I've mentioned this to Carly previously, but I see, um, uh, there's three people that I really honestly see as kind of a uh, trivariate of, of, uh, future space flight. And, uh, Dr. Alan Stern was one of them because he, and teams like Dr. Alan Stern's, uh, where we actually have the map makers that go and explore and create the, uh, the maps that people will follow. Um, and somebody like SpaceX and Elon Musk, Blue Origins as well, and uh, also Boeing, uh, people that are actually building the ships to get us there, and then Bigelow Aerospace and people like that who will actually create uh, kind of the, the initial log cabins, more or less. For us. Yep. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the initial reconnaissance, the the uh, the infrastructure to get us there, and then what do you do once you get there? Exactly, it's a great three part story. You bet. Exactly. But uh, the, the thing I mentioned as well, um, most people probably aren't aware of this, but you have, hang on, let me grab this because this is good. You have, uh, again, the idea, Mars has two moons uh, that, that we're aware of. It probably has smaller moons as well. You have Phobos and Deimos, and one of the moons is smaller than the other. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about it is that because of the, the way that they're going, one of the moons is actually in the process of leaving Martian orbit over a significant period of time. And the other one is going to be crashing into the surface. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I thought you'd be kind of geeking out a little bit about. You we're uh, looking at that idea too. Yeah. This is one of those weird coincidences in solar system architecture, if you will, uh, that, that we we're, we're living at a time very coincidentally where, we're like right, you know, after four and a half billion years of solar system history, we're right in that last, you know, few hundreds of thousands, you know, a few millions of years of one of the lifetimes of one of the moons uh, there in the solar system. It's like, that's eh, kind of a weird, you know, coincidence in a way. It's, you're, you're there at a very special time. Now, you know, obviously that means that there's, there's lots of things going on and you're going to be there. There's always going to be some special time sometime in the solar system, but, but that's kind of a weird one. Uh, I think the weirdest one, is this amazing coincidence that again we're at this a magic moment in time in solar system history where the apparent size of our moon as viewed from the surface of the earth is almost exactly the same apparent size as the disk of the sun and we get these magic wonderful total solar eclipses and it's the only place in the solar system where you can be on the surface or the you know gaseous surface of a planet and see a almost perfectly matched, you know, solar eclipse like that. There's no place else you can do that. And that's, that's miraculous. And we're at the one time as the, as the moon is changing its distance from the earth, as tides cause everything to, to, to align, that this is the one time in solar system history where that, that magic coincidence is, is, is going on. So it's like, uh, you know, go out and enjoy every solar eclipse you can, because it really is a miracle. 
Exactly. And also for uh, those who be watching this who aren't aware of it, um, the moon that we actually have is unique in the solar system in the fact that it's 27% the size of the Earth. And we, are, we have the largest moon in our solar system that we're currently aware of uh, by scale. Nothing else compares. It's like, I think the biggest other than that is maybe 7%. And uh, uh, there's the whole share on care uh, pair, right? That's a yeah. And then we have you can, you can define, if you wanted to find that as a double planet in a sense. The difference there is um, with the Earth Moon system, the barycenter, the center of mass of the Earth and Moon is just inside the surface of the Earth, whereas with Pluto and Charon, it really is outside. Uh, the surface of, of Pluto. And so the, the, those two really do orbit each other rather than kind of more thinking about the moon orbiting the earth. It's a, it's a little bit of an interesting distinction there. Yeah, totally. So I'm totally geeking out here. I should have <laughs> 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 so many fun things to talk about. Oh yeah, totally. Because like we could totally go down um, all kinds of rabbit holes with this one. Um, Cause it's, this is a, a personal passion of mine as well ever since I was a kid and, that'll actually launch into my next question because I can go and do this as well. For me, the thing that, that actually goes and ties in with, um, space, with space sciences was when I was a kid, and people are probably going to be really sick of hearing this one already, but when I was a kid, I was about maybe uh, grade six, and I had a fantastic science teacher. And one thing that he was talking about that I noticed when I was younger than that was that we always had the same face on the moon and I could never figure out why because we had the shadows and stuff that would go around it. And then he explained to me the process of tidal locking, which, you know, the moon is rotating just fast enough that we always see the same moon as it goes around, or the same face as we go around. And for me, the click was, I saw that, he explained that, and that all of a sudden got me interested in like, this is something I've seen myself. And that got me into seeing things like, Okay, so what else exists in the solar system? We've got like 33 million miles from Mercury to the sun, and we got 69 to, sorry, 67 to Venus to the, the sun, and 93 to Earth, and it's at 147, et cetera. So <clears throat> my question is, like for me, that was a watershed moment. Did you have one of those as well that put you on the path that you're on? Uh, I guess uh, it's hard to pick one. I'm, I'm very bad at these pick the pick your favorite things because I always think about two or three things. It depends on the mood I'm in and so on. But, you know, uh, I grew up always very interested in all things science. So I can't put my finger on a thing that got me into science, um, uh, an event. I mean, it was it was always it was watching every nature and science documentary I could on TV when I was little, all, you know, back when I was, you know, little, you know, uh, Jacques Cousteau was on TV a lot. I for a long time, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I guess if there was one watershed thing that really gelled it for me and put me on this path now, it was when Carl Sagan's Cosmos premiered in 1980. Oh, yeah. um, up until that point, it was all science stuff. I mean, I was interested in anything science, but Cosmos gelled in my mind the idea that I could do all of the things in science that I like by, by being an astronomer, by, being, you know, by doing planetary science. And I, so I think that was probably the event that, you know, in 10th grade, I'm going to get a PhD in astronomy and that's what I'm going to do. Um, so I guess, I guess that was it. It was, it was, it was Carl Sagan's cosmos. That was the big thing. Yeah, that was it's something I never actually got to see that much because we didn't have PBS when we were growing up. We right. had the, uh, the old rabbit ears and yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, and of course, you know, then when you join the field and you're in the field, you go to your science conferences and meetings. And I was at just about the right age that, um, I was, you know, very fortunate enough to actually get to meet Carl at the meetings and get to chat with him and, um, I remember, uh, 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 my, my, my PhD advisor at the time, um, had worked with Carl, uh, when he used to be at Cornell. So he knew Carl very well and he knew the influence. So he, he made sure to pull me in at that one meeting and just pull me over directly and introduce me to Carl. Um, I had lugged my, I, I knew that was going to happen. So I had lugged my, my Cosmo, my copy of the, the bound, you know, the hard copy uh, of the book Cosmos with me, uh, handed it to Carl to sign. And I was kind of, uh, I kind of kind of grinned sheepishly, a little embarrassed. I said, you know, the binding was broken, all the pages were falling off, the cover was tattered, you know, because it's been, you know, read and looked at so many times, right? I kind of handed it to him like that. And he, he just laughed. He said, that's the way I like to see him. So it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge compliment to an author, too, because you see that actually the book is loved as opposed to just sitting on yeah. a shelf somewhere. Yeah, you bet. It. You bet. It. Yeah, I totally get that. But, uh, yeah, that is... Just uh, sitting there thinking about uh, one of the, the people that I actually got to meet um, that was a, a personal favorite of mine was uh, James Dewan. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Working with a fan convention out in Vancouver, and uh, one of the things that we were told was, uh, you got to keep Scotch away from him. <laughs> you have to keep William Gibson out of the punch bowl. <laughs> and uh, uh, the only way that Nichelle Nichols will get on stage is if she's had a couple, just to loosen her up a little bit. So <laughs> that, that was an eye opener, actually working <laughs> at the other convention. It's, so. it's fun getting to meet all these folks. The the you know having you know meeting Cure Delay. Um, I've met all the Apollo guys, and it's it's you realize this really fortunate, amazing, lucky position you're in to get to you know kind of even in a minor way, befriend some of these folks at, at, at conferences where you're giving talks together and things like that. And you get to spend that little bit of magic time with these people that you've admired all your life and, and to realize that, you know, you can chat with them and talk with them about stuff that is in common. And it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a special privilege. It's a real, real amazing thing to get to have that, that chance. Especially when you get to see them as real people as opposed yeah. to, you know, this is a, this Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. I'm always, I always try to be conscious of that when I meet these folks. It's like, I don't want to like, oh, I love the show and talk about the character. It's like, you know, they're not the character. They're a real person with their own things. And I, I really try hard. I, it's like, you know, put that aside and just look, they're people and talk to them like people. Exactly. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on to the next one. <laughs> um, so, one of the things that, that I found kind of neat was you were telling me that uh, you're going to be working as a, uh, working with both Blue Origins and with uh, Virgin Galactic. Now, for those who aren't aware, you you basically got, I'm going to use these things again as well, you got the equivalent of two entirely different setups. With uh, Virgin Galactic, you have, I'm using my old phone here again, you basically have a lifting body like the shuttle, but with uh, Blue Origins, you have a capsule sort of based system. And one of the things I was curious about with that is, is there a control difference between flying in a capsule as opposed to flying in a lifting body? Oh, well, sure, absolutely. And especially, well, see, well, let me, let's step back just a, just a second here. Um, okay. So I, again, I'm in this incredibly lucky position as a researcher at this particular institution, at Southwest Research Institute, that um, we have recognized the, uh, that, you know, these the same commercial suborbital vehicles that are, you know, were initially at least primarily developed for the commercial space flight, sort of space tourism, uh, sort of sort of uh, idea. Uh, we pretty rapidly recognized that. Look, this same, you know, uh, often to space, relatively comparatively cheap to space um, capability offers us as space scientists the same chance to get to our field, out to the field, to do our research in the same way that a, a marine geologist will go into Alvin and go down to the bottom of the ocean and go and explore a, a deep sea vent, right? I can get to the microgravity environment myself. I can get to the environment above the atmosphere where I want to put my sensors to look out to the universe without the atmosphere in the way myself. Um, and so this is a, offers us a chance to do some really, really neat research. And so our company has been forward thinking enough to say, well, look, okay, yes, Let's get out there in front and, and, and help, you know, develop this and, and, and let's see what we can do with these vehicles. And so we have a program here uh, with three of us, uh, Alan Stern in the lead. So there you go back to Alan uh, being on the forefront of all these good things um, of um, uh, a group of three of, uh, three of us fortunate enough to go uh, and get to go fly these vehicles and fly the payloads that we've been developing. And that's going to be coming up and uh, we are going to be flying with Virgin Galactic. Uh, we're, we're talking with Blue Origin about flying with them as well. And uh, from our perspective as the researchers, we're going to be, um, you know, kind of passengers along the way uh, in, these, in these vehicles doing uh, not only our, our microgravity and our observing um, uh, experiments, we ourselves in some way are going to be payloads as well because we've been encouraging our, 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 uh, uh, our colleagues to say, look, you know, every time you fly, you're a potential test subject. You're a body of data, literally, for our uh, human physiology colleagues who want to better understand how the human body is reacting to this flight environment and microgravity. How, how rapidly do you start to adapt to microgravity? Everybody who flies is a data point. And so we're going to wire ourselves up and, you know, uh, to help, help provide some of that. So um, from our perspective as passengers, there's not going to be a whole lot of difference flying either vehicle because, you know, we're just along for the ride, so to speak. 
and we're there to do our job. But but absolutely, from the perspective of, of the way the vehicle behaves and so on, it's going to be a whole different environment. I mean, when we fly with Virgin Galactic, we're going to be slung below the carrier aircraft as it spirals up to 50,000 feet before we get dropped off. That's going to be a much longer flight. That's going to take an hour to do just that part of the flight uh, before we drop off and get launched up X-15 style uh, up to, you know, 300,000 feet or so uh, to, uh, to experience microgravity and, and all that. So that's going to be a longer flight for one thing. Um, the, um, quite frankly, the boost phase on, on, on this will be about the same as stepping over now to the Blue Origin vehicle, New Shepard, which is literally, it's a capsule on a rocket. It's the, uh, it, you know, it's, it's the Alan Shepard special. I mean, they call it the, the New Shepard for a reason. It's very much like the first suborbital flights that the, uh, the U.S. did with, uh, with Alan Shepard in the lead. Um, launch up to, you know, 100 kilometers. Your, the total flight is going to be maybe 15, 20 minutes. Uh, three or four minutes of microgravity over the top as you're flying ballistic over the atmosphere. Um, kind of Mach 3 on the way up, Mach 3, on, Mach 3, 3 and a half on the way down. Um, maybe 3 Gs on the way up, uh, spiking up very, very softly. It's, I've, I've flown the profile in the centrifuge, and it's, it's actually very gentle, but spiking up to about 6 Gs on the way down. But it's 6 Gs, you know, laying on your back. It's 6 Gs in this dimension, not this way, right? When you're flying a jet fighter, like um, when I'm pulling Gs in an F-104 and F-18 or something, you're pulling those five or six Gs down this way. And that's pulling all the blood from, it wants to pull the blood from your head down to your toes. And that's why people pass out. When you're pulling the Gs in this direction though, when you're laying flat, that's, it's much, much, much easier to take. And I'll tell you, practically anybody can do that. I mean, you know, even it's going to take the most most egregious medical issues that people would have to maybe make that not such a great idea for them to try. But um, I'll, I'll bet I could take a hundred people off the street, and ninety nine of them would be just fine with with doing those flights. And <clears throat> the thing that's kind of I find neat right now is, um, you know, I'm old enough to have actually seen Walter Cronkite on television, and at the same time as well, this is it's such an unprecedented era in spaceflight because you have what used to only happen with government, you know, institutions where you had basically this giant rocket that was being launched into space and you have this little tiny capsule that goes into orbit. That's what used to be a government agency sort of set up in these days. It's actually private organizations that are doing it. And it's just so phenomenal to me because you get instead of one group or maybe three groups at the most, you can have four, uh, four different uh, companies inside. You can have everybody. It's going to be. I think it's going to. It's going to be a very transformative process in a way that we can't yet predict. When you know everybody gets to go fly, you're going to have the whole breadth, the whole spectrum of human experience and and perspectives to relate back to this, having gone and experienced this, and coming back and talking about it and relating to people. And I think that's going to be an absolutely wonderful thing. You're going to hear and, and you're going to have new perspectives on human experience and, and the world we live on and relating to people back and forth in, in a way that we've never had before. Everybody who flies in space is transformed by it. And, and as you said, so far, that, that, that piece of the spectrum of humanity has been relatively limited. I mean, astronauts are people like everybody else, but I mean, it's true. I mean, you, you're, we're, we're selecting from a rather elite sort of, group of, of humanity and uh when everybody gets to go fly you're going to have a lot more of that perspective coming back and i think that's going to be so helpful it's going to it's i think it's going to really affect the way people talk to each other and that's that's going to be a good thing and when you're talking about transformative that's absolutely it too because if you think about just the history of our our, our own society we had um when we had people coming to america you initially had the pioneers that were getting on those ships knowing that they might not come back You'd have a couple of those, and then it became more commonplace. And then you had the equivalent of the U-Haul type of experience where you had just ships coming over and dropping people off. And, and space flight, I'm positive, is going to be the same way. You start off with the initial pioneers who are going up there expect, expecting to be exploded in, in midair until it becomes commonplace. And then you have the shuttle sort of set up, yeah. and you yeah. have everybody going up well to go to, to to continue your analogy we're going from the from you know the the sailing ships of columbus to you know we're entering we're entering the end era of uh of luxury cruise ships right in that sense where anybody can take a vacation and and go and experience the ocean and sail across to far off lands and uh that's 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 you know that's the analogy exactly 
Okay, <laughs> I should ask the next question too. Yeah, because I think we're like, oh. we're, we're we're fiddling around with a whole bunch of things here that are probably answering a lot of stuff that we were going to chat about. So that's fine. That's great. Yeah, totally. So I'm going to ask the the next one here, which was, uh, what's the hardest thing about working in your field as a person, and what sort of things make you want to pitch it in? <laughs> as in, not do it anymore. As in, not do it. Um, anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, just very bluntly, I guess the thing that makes it difficult day to day is just raising the money to do what we do. Um, uh, at, at, uh, I, I, work, I don't work in academia. I mean, it's academic like uh, the, the, the private company that we work for, but, um, but it's not like a, a, you know, a state funded uh, or even a private funded uh, uh, faculty position, you know, a, a tenured faculty position. Uh, I have to raise all the money for what I do for myself. I have to write a lot of grant proposals to NASA, the National Science Foundation, National Geographic, you name it. And uh, it's tough. It's competitive. It's hard. There's a lot of really bright people out there competing for a pretty limited pool of funding to do what we do. And uh, and that and that's tough. It's a challenge. I mean, it's in some ways it's kind of fun because it really focuses you and it makes you think about what you're doing and why you want to do it. And you get kind of you know excited about it, but you know, when you write a proposal and the proposal review comes back and people don't really like it, it's kind of, it's a bit of an ego kick, you know, it's like, yeah. So that I, if I had to point to one thing, I would think that would be it is, is, is the, the, the challenge and the difficulty of, of continuously chasing the funds to, to, to do what we do. That said, uh, you can't complain about that too much because I'm really privileged. We're all really privileged to get to work in an environment like that where we get to do uh, we get to be kids, right, and 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 do this joyous, uh, innocent, amazing, fun, lovely exploration of the world around us, and get paid to do it, and and remember that we're getting paid to do it out of the public coffers, right? So, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, easy and fashionable and fun sometimes to 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 complain and moan about how difficult that is, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a great privilege to get to do that. So uh, hard to complain too much. And in addition to that, most people don't even see the the benefits, the the practical benefits that we get from spaceflight. I mean, one of the first things as a kid that I was I learned <clears throat> about space that was a practical thing is I used to drink Tang, and that was developed for the space program. And the first, maybe not the first uh, pens that would write in any any sort of setup that was Parker actually that made those, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. um, the the whole idea was. Um, you had so many uh, developments that came back from spaceflight that have gone into into standard society that we don't even see them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's yeah. It's it's so much. I mean, there's there. I mean, we can. There's been so many studies and so many examples of all those tangible, real world technological advances that have come. Um, and those are all. You know, well, most of them are true. I mean, there's a few little uh, stories out there about things like Velcro and it's like, well, yeah, but that wasn't really from the space program, but it, it's the spirit of it though. And it's exactly the, the correct idea that there's been a lot of, you know, the, we spend so much money on space. I've never seen a dollar bill floating around empty out there in the solar system. All that money is spent here on the earth, right? <laughs> it's spent here uh, to make our lives better here on earth and it makes our lives better here on earth. That's the, so there, there's all that, the, 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 the direct tangible things, but I like to also remind people always about the intangibles, the, the raising of the human spirit of learning more. We, we are so privileged to live in a society and specifically in a country uh, that is, you know, in a nation that's rich enough. And I don't mean rich by money, although that's certainly part of it, but rich enough in spirit that we go and we do this and we learn and we're curious and we share our results and we were fascinated with learning more about the world around us. And that's going to echo through history. And uh, that's what's important. And that was what I always thought was so brilliant about, uh, about uh, Elon Musk launching uh, Starman in his yeah. Tesla. It touched the human spirit. It really, it was like, you know what? You can launch a space probe. You can, you can do something fancy and scientific. But, you know, you, you launch that car with that astronaut suit sitting in there and people just got it. It's like, oh, yeah. And yeah, it's the spirit. I mean, I, yeah, there's the technical things, the, 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 the tangible benefits, but for me, I'm, I'm an artist too. And I have that, that side of me that just always, you know, that, that romantic view of things. And that's, you know, it's, I, I, when it touches the human spirit like that, as you saw it did, that tells you something. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was watching that going, Oh, that's so fantastic. <laughs> 
because uh, I do the same thing. Um, I'm a I'm a hobbyist working with uh, with art and stuff as well. I was modding a, a game for years and years, and that got me quite interested in, in doing Star Trek stuff or doing uh, textures and. Mm-hmm. Not a super professional, but I can get by with a graphics program. So, <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, I'm going to actually going to skip one of the no 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 I'm going to ask this one because this is kind of important. So what do you think? Uh, what have you been the most proud the most proud of with uh, what SWRI has uh, has accomplished and what? What's uh, upcoming for SWRI? Oh, cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, gosh, do I point to a specific thing or just a generic thing? I'm, I'm just so proud that, uh, well, there's a couple things. I, I, I'm proud of what we do. I'm proud of what our company does. They're, they're, so, um, they're so far-reaching and so broad in scope and so imaginative. Um, the, the things we, the thing, it's not just space this company does. I mean, it's, it's, it's all kinds of R&D. The, uh, the, the founding vision uh, of Tom Slick, the, uh, the oil man who started the company was, I mean, this is a guy who made his fortune in the oil industry uh, and saw the value in research and in development and in exploring. And that spirit is carried through the Institute the whole, the whole time. I, so I'm just, I'm just really happy and proud to work for a company that values that and, and, uh, and, and enables that. And, and much more specifically uh, at the ground level, I'm just so happy and proud and fortunate to work in an office of a whole bunch of great people. It's just a big family of people who all share that sort of that same passion. And it's just a great fun group of people to work with. You know, some places you get this sort of inner office bickering and well, you know, Bob got his new desk. That means I can't get mine. We don't have any of that here. It's just a, it's a, it's a great group of people. And I love coming to work every day and hanging out with them. It's just, it's great. So that's, that's what I'm proud of here. What's next. What's next for our office are more cool things like New Horizons. New Horizons is, in the, in, you know, in, in some ways seems to be wrapping up its mission. It's still going to be going on for, for many, many years, doing a lot of exploration out there. But, um, you know, in, in, the, in sort of the, 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 what's most visible in the public view is, you know, that, that phenomenal flyby of the Pluto-Charon system back in the summer of 2015. Uh, now, uh, New Year's 2019, we just had that fan. <laughs> amazing team effort uh, flying by Ultima Thule and getting to see this, you know, pristine building block of the icy bodies in the outer solar system. Uh, what's coming next is we've got a whole bunch of other missions in the pipeline being developed and, 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 and built as we speak here uh, to go out and continue that exploration. Um, uh, looking at uh, the Trojan asteroids uh, out there, you know, out, out near Jupiter uh, we've got people working on spacecraft to go and, you know, explore in detail the, the atmosphere of the sun. Uh, we've got people on missions to just about every planet in the solar system you can think of and every destination you can think of. So there's a, there's a lot coming. It's a, um, it's, it's a fun place, that's for sure. Totally. Carly and I had actually spoken briefly about uh, Lucy. And- yeah, Lucy specifically. That's where I was going. I was yeah, good. I'm glad that was mentioned specifically. Lucy is, is in the process of getting ready to be built and, uh, uh, that's going to be a fantastic mission exploring, uh, you know, several uh, Trojan asteroids and uh, getting getting a, uh, a look at these things uh, that will kind of tell us a little bit more about the building blocks of the solar system, where we ourselves came from. And one of the things I'm actually hoping to see in my lifetime again is uh, the, I'd love to see probes uh, back out to, uh, it's always a trick how to pronounce this word, Uranus and uh, yeah, Uranus and Neptune, and that's the that's the proper historical pronunciation. I know people like to have fun with that particular name of that planet, but historically, it's how it was pronounced. Exactly, and I'd love to see probes around there because yeah. literally most people aren't aware that um, when Voyager went out or the Voyager probes went out there, they just just they they right by. Yeah, it's a yeah. It was our, it was a preliminary reconnaissance, and it was an absolutely fantastic preliminary reconnaissance. That's what you have to do. Uh, but then what those do, it's like the Apollo missions. What that does, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's the only the beginning. It, it opens up all of the new questions to ask. And, you know, uh, Voyager did that for the outer solar system. Uh, I mentioned Apollo. You know, people, oh, we've been to the moon. You don't go back there. It's just going back and doing more of the same. It's like, oh, it is so much different than that. Apollo only told us all the fun stuff to start to ask. There is so much still to do at the moon. Exactly. I'd, I'd actually put it closer to being Mercury, to be honest, because it's, Mercury was putting one guy up into or, and yeah, yeah, he dies. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's totally where I saw Voyager as being was it's just like, you know, yeah. we're just wizards. Just the beginning. Just the beginning. Yep. There's so much. That's the beauty of what we do. There's never an end to it. Every time you poke at a new place, it doesn't matter whether you've been there before or not. Every time you poke, you uncover another layer of the onion to start asking new questions about. That's the nature of science and exploration and discovery is it never ends. And that's the joy of it. There's always something new to learn and explore and excite the human imagination about. Exactly. Because with, when you also you take a look at Uranus and Neptune, you have the, the anomaly of you have one that has a tilt, and then you have one that has a tilt. And why does it have a tilt? Yeah. Like everything else has a tilt, you know? Yep. That's what I would love to see more yep. of. Yep. Well, learn about their interiors. I mean, they're different types of planets than the other two big gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. They behave differently. Their atmospheres look differently, uh, look different. Their magnetic fields are different. They, we think we understand from the theoretical computational models that their origin was slightly different, the way they grew to their current sizes and accreted initially. And going there and actually orbiting around them will help, you know, uncover, uh, teach us a little bit more about that process. So in the same way that discovering all the, this, I mean, you know, to me, I, I got in, part of what got me in the field, you know, what excited me from Cosmos was this concept of, of planets around other stars and life on those other planets around other stars. That was a, obviously a, you know, the, the key root, you know, guiding passion that Carl had that of course wore off on me. And for me today, even though I don't, I don't work in this field, it's what got me in uh, or that, and that subspecialty in the field is what got me in the, in the field overall was extrasolar planets. And we have learned so much more about our own solar system uh, in context now by having discovered so many planets around other stars to see the, the architecture, to see what's possible. It puts our solar system in context and helps us go back to the drawing board and better understand how we got to where we are. Definitely. And I was... Actually, I keep looking at the uh, the model that's behind you, and it, we initially discussed it before in the section where we're going to be cutting it out. But that, when I looked at uh, what was behind you, I initially thought it was a, a model of a generational ship. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which would, which would be, you know, we're, we're going to do that someday. I mean, you know, we're in the process now. We've, 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 we've been to the moon. We've, we've, we've dipped that toe into the into the... The, the, you know, into the waters washing up on the beach of the cosmic ocean, but we've got a long way to wade in still. And, you know, at some point we're going to venture off to a near-Earth asteroid while we're practicing to go to Mars. And that's not going to be the end of it either. I mean, I, I want to see us, you know, get out there. I mean, you know, there's, there's going to be, eventually there are going to be humans traveling out there to the moons of Saturn and, you know, and, and beyond. And, you know, someday there are going to be those generational shifts. I, I think our human species is going to, you know, I guess by that time we'll probably evolve to not quite be humans anymore. I'm sure we'll be some sort of cybernetic, you know, constructs that are half machine and half biological. And it's going to change by the time we're out there literally traveling, traveling, you know, between the stars and off to other, other worlds that way. But I, you know, if things continue to go well, I think we're going to be doing that. And I, that's, you know, if I had my, if I had pixie dust and could spread it around and, 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 and sprinkle some on myself to get to go do something like that, you, know, you bet I would love to go and see what some of those worlds around other planets or around other stars look like. I want to I stand on that moon of a gas, ringed gas giant planet around some other world and look up in the sky and, you know, avatar-esque, I guess, right, and, and see that big world up there floating in the sky with multiple moons. And, uh, you know, yeah, I want to do that. It would be so amazing. I won't get to do it, but, I mean, spiritually, yeah, I would love to get to go and do that. Exactly. And I was sitting here thinking, you know, when it comes right down to it, um, slightly evolving, that's kind of one of the things that humans tend to do because, you know. <clears throat> sure, we're already, yeah, yeah, you betcha. Glass. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I've, got, I've got two metal screws in my knee from the reconstructive surgery from a bad fall. That's a, you know, some people go farther than that. I've got, you know, there's, I mean, really detailed prosthetics, and that's, and that's coming to the point now where, I mean, there's, there's the bionic eyes that people have now and, you know, it's, it, we're, we're getting there. It's, I mean, there's the whole other discussion about whether you really want to go there or not. You know, it's like the, 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 the Jeff Goldblum thing from Jurassic Park, you know, about <laughs> whether it's, it may be possible, but do you really want to do it or not? Uh, there's a whole legitimate question to, you know, discussion to have, but, but the possibilities are there and there are, you know, along with the potential bad things that can come, it's like anything. There's also a lot of good things that, if properly applied and managed, can really improve things for you. So, yeah, you know, this, this, that might be that might be the future we go to. 
Exactly. I just see it as an evolution of biohacking um, yeah. because we have people these days that are doing, um, there's one gentleman who's uh, what was it? Bulletproof Coffee, the founder of him, of, of that organization says he wants to try to live to be 180 and he's doing some radical stuff yeah. to try to make that happen. So. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's certainly, I think it's certainly possible. I, the question is, when a lot of people start getting to do that, how is that going to change society, right? It's going to change the structure of things. It's going to, but, you know, there could be some negative implications, but from an individual personal, oh man, if I could have a functional body and mind to be 180, think of that, you could have three and four careers in your life. You could be interested and learn. It'd be like Bicentennial Man. I love that movie. I was like, it's a deeply underrated movie. I, there's, there's so much depth in that movie. But I, the concept you could you could have think of think of the things you could do and you could have multiple careers like that. Especially if it was somebody like a, uh, somebody like a Da Vinci or a, a Michelangelo, you know, just yeah. constantly. Well, anybody. I mean, anybody. Any. I mean, doesn't. Not, I mean, everyday person to have. I mean, how many of us? I mean, everybody would like a second chance, right? There's always something in your life where you'd like a second chance at. Well, when you live to be 180, maybe you can have that. So. It's not just for the for the geniuses. It's for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to get into question number six here. We actually just briefly touched on number seven, which was uh, I was basically asking about you know if you could have the uh, mm-hmm. magic warp bu- uh, bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. <laughs> but uh, okay, if there was a way to have the public more aware of what you do in various space programs, what would be the main thing you'd like the public to know that scientists? are hoping to achieve with the initial crude space flight and follow-up? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. All the, uh, I mean, well, I guess, I mean, in, in a sense, we're kind of doing that now with the, with the suborbital. That's what I was kind of alluding to where I'm really happy and proud that we're able to play a little bit of that leader, leadership role in showing people that um, these commercial suborbital vehicles are not just for rich tourists to go and have some adventure holiday. Is there's, there's, there's more to it than that. I mean, well, first of all, even on that front, um, you know, I remember when the first flat screen TVs came out and I was all, you know, wide eyed looking in the store. But then, you, of course, you look at the price for the, the little screen that was not much bigger than the computer monitor I'm looking at right now for $16,000. Well, yeah, of course, not many people could afford those back then. But the people who did buy in early brought the price down and the economy of scale grew. And you've got now where everybody's got a huge flat screen practically. It's that's the nature of how these things work is of course, things are a little, you know, expensive at the beginning and only a few privileged people get to do that, but that ultimately brings it down for everybody. So um, what we recognize is that as that market evolves and as these vehicles continue to fly, it's going to allow, I already touched on this. It's going to allow us to go and fly more often and get the research done that we want to do. So, um, and, and, and on that front, there's there what, what I, I think what I want people in, to think about is that we haven't even scratched the surface. I think of thinking about the applications for, you know, what what the what the implications of this coming more frequent, more affordable access to space is going to do for our society, not just for us as scientists, but for everybody. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I I've used the analogy before, Alan. Alan Stearns used this analogy before, but I think it's really true. It's we're at the stage with, with this, with this um, availability uh, and, and, and ease of access to space in the way that uh, computers were back in the early 1970s or something, right? If you ask somebody in 1970, what would you do with a computer in your house? Well, first of all, they would picture this thing that was many, many filing cabinets worth of space that would have to sit in the basement. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what they would think to do with it. I mean, you might organize your recipes with it or something, right? I, you know, keep a record of them. That's, I mean, the, your, your concept of what to do with it back then is nowhere, nothing like what we have today. And I am next to certain that our concept of what we're going to be doing in space um, today are, are, you know, are, are pretty limited. I, I think when, 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 when everybody gets to start having that experience and, and having that transformation of what it feels like to be in zero G, which I've gotten more than one Earth orbit worth of already. It's an amazing, magical, transformative experience that change. It does literally change the way you think about things. It's affected my research because I, I can think about what the surfaces of little asteroids are going to be like because I, I in, a, in a way that a lot of my colleagues can't because 
I've, I've, I've been there. I know what it's like to work with gravel and see things kind of do this behavior that can be very counterintuitive at times. And so it does, it changes how you think about things. And when everybody starts to get to fly to space, that broad spectrum of, 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 of relating to the things you can do in space is going to change. And that's going to have payoffs and implications and, 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 um, you know, uh, it's, it's going to, it's, we, we can't even imagine what we're going to be doing in space uh, in years to come. And I, I think that's what's so cool about it. If I had one message, that's what it's going to be is we, we haven't even imagined what we're going to be doing yet. Yeah. Cause it's, it, you, you just, you watch sci-fi as an example and you see some concepts in there, but there's other stuff that it, you get pieces here and pieces there. But if you have the idea of, you know, you're going to go out for an afternoon and uh, you're going to hop on the space elevator and go up to uh, the station that's in near earth orbit from there, mm-hmm. just hop the shuttle over to a station and uh, just visit the L1 station. You know, that would just be, yeah, yeah. For us, it's almost mind-boggling, but for somebody in the future, that'd be like uh, driving to Florida. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me, I, I mean, just something just popped in my mind as you were, as you were mentioning that. It, it, I was thinking, my, my brain went to thinking about art and artwork and how is art going to change when more people have a zero-G experience. I remember one of my, uh, Chris Butler, one of my space art colleagues once, uh, I remember him saying, it's like, you know, when you think about framing a picture here on Earth, we, we frame things, I mean, physically frame a picture for hanging on your wall. You, you, you do it either like landscape style or portrait style. There, there's an orientation. You're already, you're thinking in terms of, because there's always, we grew up with a G vector, right? You're going to hang something. So it's, you know, what about zero G art? You just know up or down. How do you, how do you display zero G art? How do you experience it? Is it going to be more experiential than, you know, than, than viewable. My mind went there, but that wasn't the point I was going to make. Let me go back to one concrete example of the kind of transformative thing that starts to happen when you, when you have that access to a different environment. Um, think about, uh, and people are already doing this, 3D printing in space. When, you, when, we, when we're having a, a, when we have people and, and, and economies that are permanently in space, um, the structures that you're going to build there, the tools, the things, the, 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 the structures that you're going to work with are going to be different than what we work with here on the earth. There may be filamentary structures that you need for some purpose that you couldn't even have here on the earth because it wouldn't even support itself in the, in the one G field. But yet out there in space, you know, there's this, there, there may be this, this thing that is this amazingly useful thing that we can't even picture today because it can't physically exist here on the planet. And, you know, so that there's an example of, of, of just something that might, you know, a, an imaginable example of something that, that, that might be out there. And, you know, as, as people are fond of saying, look, I mean, that applies to the universe, but it's all sci-fi. We, you know, the, the world ends up being a lot more, you know, imaginative than we are. So there's going to be all kinds of stuff we can't even contemplate yet. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's, that's, if that, that's the message. That's the message. You mentioned that. And the first thing I thought of was the dry dock from uh, the Star Trek, the motion picture, but imagining mm-hmm. that is sort of like a, a carbon nanotube sprayed little setup that has robots on the inside that build your craft that don't even have to be following any aerodynamic principles whatsoever and just yep. something that just is built in space. And yeah, I totally get it. I totally get it. Yep. Okay. Uh, geez, we're, <laughs> I think we're coming up to almost an hour. Yeah, that was a, that was a longer half hour than we had planned, but you know what? Um, uh, that's that's fun and easy and it could keep going. So yeah, <laughs> that's the joy of it. You know, it happens. So great. I love it. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I could, again, I, I so rarely get to talk to, to people who have any kind of a concept of anything outside of, you know, the, the little bubble that it's, it's so nice to talk to somebody who actually has that. So, yeah, well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of folks out there and there's a lot of that out there. And it's the, like I said, it's the privilege, the, the joy of working in a place like this where you get to hang around with people like that all the time. And uh, it's the, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the humility of realizing that, that there's a lot more folks out there like that than you, than you know. So that's, that's the fun of it. Exactly. And depending on the circumstances, you know, you could have somebody um, just, you know, well, like this, right? We're just having a conversation and realizing. In every field, in every field. I mean, it's like, I, that was, to me, that was the biggest um, 
benefit of having to work hard to get a PhD, right? There's, there's so many, um, there's so much, um, in, in my view, in my perspective on it, so much uh, artificial um, respect for what a PhD means to get a PhD. And yeah, it's a lot of hard work to get there and everything. But if, I think if you do it right, when you actually get your PhD, I mean, if, you, if you've done that journey correctly, in my opinion, you arrive at the other end realizing it should be, a, to me, it's a very humbling experience because you realize that you now know, okay, maybe you know a lot about, but you know, one, one particular little tiny little bit of the human experience. And in my experience with it was it gave me the perspective that I may know a lot about a little bit of a thing, but that tells me that there's a whole world of a whole bunch of stuff I know nothing about. Um, and there's a lot of people out there who know a lot more about a lot of things than I do. So and that's, for me, it was a humbling experience. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to the conversation because uh, Brian and I are going to have a chat as well. Um, oh, excellent. Good. Yeah. And that's excellent. Yeah, he'll, he's a, he's a he's a he's a he's a pretty brilliant guy too, and he will he can he can tell you a lot more about the Mars stuff than I could. That's for sure. I'm I'm totally going to bug him about the possibility of an artificial um, main magnetosphere that's uh, being generated from an L1 point. Yep. 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 Oh, he he's your he's your guy for that kind of far-reaching stuff for sure. Okay, so I think that should be about uh, should about wrap it up. If there's anything else that uh, you were thinking of, you want to mention? Oh my God, so many things! But uh, just yeah, thanks, Darren. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking with you about this, all this fun stuff, and could keep doing it. That's for sure. I'm totally going to. I've, I've waffled for a couple, three years, but I started with uh, Brian Rose's team um, for doing the uh, the podcast, and it's just like you know what? Why have I been waiting so long? It's been yeah. so enjoyable to do this. That's awesome. Fun. Cool. Good work. So I may bug you in the future just, just to bug you. <laughs> That'd be fun. Happy to do it. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks. I'm going to uh, close, just uh, close the recording off and, uh, and uh, really appreciate the, the amount of time, especially because we're over an hour now and that was half an hour more than I was expecting. So really appreciate that a lot. You bet. Fun stuff. Glad to do it. Visualization zero. Automatically program the select eight seven six five four three two one with extinction zero.